I'm Jane Hubbard, here with another snippet. Tracy Johnson's work focuses on co-transcriptional splicing, splicing that's happening right as genes are transcribed. I asked her how that interest came about. When I first started studying splicing, um, it was at a time where a number of labs had done really beautiful biochemical dissection, actually using yeast systems, of the splicing reaction to kind of really figure out a really nice parts list, the nuts and bolts, how do pieces come together? And that was, a lot of that was done in vitro. But really in the back of everyone's mind were images of nascent transcription using Drosophila embryos from years and years ago, which showed that introns were looped out at sites of transcription. So while we had this really nice biochemical picture, it was very clear that what was happening in the cell was likely to be more complicated. So that, that I think, was a reminder that once we got to the point where we had a parts list, really understanding how those parts fit into the larger context of transcription was going to be the next step. And so, um, you know, it means that things that happen during transcription can affect splicing. And that's something that my lab's been very interested in. And, of course, things that maybe happen during splicing could affect transcription, which is also something that we're very uh, interested in. And um, so, you know, that's really kind of those basic questions is what got us uh, interested in it. And then drawing the connection between splicing and chromatin, you know, that really started with genetics for us. And it started in um, genetic screens in which we looked for functional interactions between transcription-related genes and components of the splicing machinery. And we found that, you know, you could delete from the genome, the gene encoding, you know, a protein involved in transcription or chromatin. And you could separately make a deletion of a gene involved in splicing. And the cell would be okay under those circumstances, but combining those mutations, making a double deletion, is something that the geneticists think about a lot as synthetic lethality. And those are beautiful ways of starting to get a hint at things that may be involved in uh, related or overlapping pathways. And so that's really how this started, us doing genetics and finding why is it that things that are involved in chromatin seem to have these functional interactions with the splicing machinery. And then once we started looking at these interfaces, then we knew what experiments we wanted to do. So was that how you got onto the histone variant H2AZ in splicing? And, and, and can you tell me a little bit more about that particular histone variant and why that might have been the key? We started again with the genetic screen, and uh, that's a histone variant. In fact, you can delete the gene that encodes the variant, and the cells are viable, at least under under some conditions. And um, and then we'd also been interested in um, some of the other chromatin-related uh, proteins that are involved in exchanging this histone variant um, for you know, it's canonical, the canonical histone, and found that those were also having the same genetic interactions with our splicing components. So it suggested that there was something about the variant and the placement of that variant that 
um, had an effect on splicing. And that's really where, where those experiments started. And then so subsequently, what we showed is that those variants affect the way the polymerase moves through the chromatin template. And in fact, those changes in the way transcription occurs also change the ability of the machinery to efficiently assemble onto the RNA. So this kind of relationship between the speed of the polymerase and the ability to assemble onto an RNA um, turned out to be really important for this mechanism by which the variant affects splicing. What's been really interesting is that chromatin can affect splicing in different ways. Um, but that particular story suggested that it was the way which the variant affected the polymerase's movement through the chromatin environment that was really key to the effect on splicing. Did you see the same or a different effect when you look at things like more, I guess, well-studied chromatin modifications like the um, methylation on lysine 36 of histone H3, for example. Does that work the same way? Again, you know, that story started with genetics. Um, when I was starting my lab, I had a really terrific um, postdoc who was working with me who had, um, who, you know, we embarked on this genetic screen. And one of the things that came out of the genetic screen is having strong interactions with components of the splicing machinery was the enzyme that catalyzes methylation at lysine 36, which is a very conserved histone modification. That was years ago, and we really came back to it um, with more genetics. And then there were starting to be hints in the literature that there was something going on with histone H3 lysine 36 methylation that was connected to splicing. And so um, with that as the entry point, that's where we wanted to understand the mechanism. And to your question, mechanistically, um, it's different than the way in which the histone variant affects splicing. In this case, what we show is that that methylation mark on the histone is a site where another protein with the right kind of domain can bind to that um, methylated lysine and then have other interactions that help to stabilize association of the splicing machinery co-transcriptionally. So we kind of think of it more as a, you know, an, a, like an adapter that uh, bridges between the chromatin and between the splicing machinery. And this would be that EAF3 protein? Exactly, exactly. And so EAF3 was, okay. was a great candidate because we knew that the methylation was important and EAF3 has a chromodomain, which is a part of the protein that then attracts it to the, uh, the histone. And we were able to show that it interacts not only with the histone, but it also is able to physically interact with the splicing machinery. So it fits perfectly as that bridge between, between, those, between those two reactions. Do you think that these discoveries could have been made without unbiased genetics? Just sort of hammering away at it in some other way? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's possible that we would have sort of gotten at pieces of it. But I have to say, what I love about doing genetics is, you know, kind of thinking about it broadly and allowing the genetics to draw connections. Because there are things that I don't necessarily, I, 
it's impossible for me to say, well, splicing or splicing machinery must have this interaction or must have this effect. We don't know what we don't know. And that's why genetics is so powerful. Um, you know, we, we've started uh, teaching here at UCLA an undergraduate class that is a genetic screen in which we start with a temperature sensitive mutant in a splicing factor and then do a mutagenesis and look for suppressors of the temperature sensitivity. And that has reinforced to me just how much is out there that we don't know because we found things in the screen that I, I would have never guessed. And the way in which they connect to splicing isn't always something that's physically part of the machinery. But one of the things we're learning, for example, is that when introns accumulate, they go to a particular place in the cell and that can be toxic. And so some of the suppressors are relieving that toxicity. I wouldn't have known that. So this is what I love about the genetics and why yeast as a system can be so powerful because you don't know what you don't know. I was curious about the toxic intron sequences sticking together and whether there are RNA-RNA interactions that became super abundant in ways they shouldn't. It's a wonderful question, and I think that there's probably different answers to it. So there are um, examples of RNAs or unspliced RNAs that essentially soak up machinery so that it's not available for other reactions. Um, That can be toxic. Um, there is evidence that they bind to RNA binding proteins that can form aggregates, and those aggregates could be toxic. They may be forming in the nucleus, they may be forming in the cytoplasm, uh, but they also, but in, in either case, they could become toxic. There's evidence that some neurological diseases are in fact associated with these toxic RNA protein aggregates. And so I think one of the questions that my lab is really interested in is when there is a defect in splicing, is it possible that that defect is not just caused because you're not making a particular message, but is it possible that that defect can be causing toxicity because there are things that are inappropriately interacting with that accumulating abundance of unspliced RNA?